Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Andrea Vidali. Uh, He's a doctor. He works on endometriosis, adenomyosis, and miscarriage. And we're going to talk to him about his work. So, Andrea, thank you for coming. Richard, thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. And to have an interesting conversation about this topic that many people hear about, but very few people actually have an in-depth knowledge about them. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of miscarriage, certainly. My wife has experienced it in the past. Unfortunately, endometriosis, we haven't had direct experience with, but I've heard it's very debilitating. And then adenomyosis, I've never heard of. But So can you would you mind just for the audience defining the three conditions, and then we'll get into them in each Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to say a little bit about what I do first, who I am, because I think that's going to help to frame the conversation a little bit better. By training, I am initially a gynecologist, but then I became a fertility specialist and I ran fertility center and IVF center. And then I developed a more keen interest in uh, more of the troubleshooting of the fertility rather than IVF is a treatment. I got really interested in what causes the fertility problem at the base of it? You know, what is the the actual source of the problem? And hence, I developed an interest in dealing with endometriosis and also dealing with immunological causes of reproductive failure. When it comes to endometriosis, it's one of those things where it's extremely common, but despite being extremely prevalent and common, it is not treated appropriately. The care of it is not the, where it should be in terms of medicine. Yeah. Medical. Well, I've heard it takes uh, years and years to get a diagnosis, like what, seven to 10 years for the average person. It sure does. The average time to diagnosis is seven to 10 years. And the average person who gets diagnosed to, to, with endometriosis uh, sees 
up to six, seven doctors in the process. And usually gets dismissed with things like, well, it's normal, it's just period cramps, it's just a cyst, things of this sort where the person keeps on getting worse and worse and worse and keeps on being bounced from one doctor and another until they finally find a diagnosis. It's one of the problems that we have in healthcare today, which it is certain conditions, I think, do not get the attention they deserve from the medical community. What about adenomyosis? I've never heard of this. What, what is it? Adenomyosis is basically, adeno means gland and meiosis means muscle. It's a condition that's similar to endometriosis, which is the presence of these ectopic glands, these newly formed glands that resemble but are not like the uterus itself and in the muscle of the uterus. And that also causes severe menstrual cramps, also systemic symptoms, because what we need to remember about this condition, which can, you know, adenomyosis, endometriosis, is that they are inflammatory conditions. And uh, whenever there's inflammation, there's usually systemic problems, you know, because a local inflammatory process causes systemic problems because your body is basically fighting a battle at the, at a systemic level. And uh, that usually results besides the local pain that's present and also the fertility problems, it results in fatigue and which is, you know, typical problem of uh, a, somebody who has a chronic inflammatory process. And for some people, the fatigue is the only symptom, symptom, for example. So people feel fatigued. They don't know what's going on. And endometriosis and adenomyosis are such terrible conditions specifically because they affect the person in their totality, in, if you will both from a reproductive, physical, and, uh, you know, daily activity type of perspective. So pretty serious disease that, like I just said, it's not taken very seriously and it's mismanaged terribly, mostly because the most common solution used is uh, offering people hormonal treatments, which... What's the point of solutions if it doesn't seem to be understood at all? I mean, endometriosis, I've, I haven't spoken to everybody, but a few... I really have no indication from anyone where it comes from, why it's there, why does it get worse or better, et cetera. It's well, like a blank slate. We don't know, right? We do know that endometriosis, the stage for the development of endometriosis is, is set very early in life. Some people think early, even in the during fetal life before birth. And we do know that the presence of endometriosis can be associated with other immunological conditions, but we don't really know what the genetic determinants of these conditions are. And unfortunately, there has been, in the, from the medical community, the perspective that this is an incurable disease for which there's no treatment. So don't even bother trying. Just take these hormones because it's the only thing we can offer you. And although hormones hormonal treatments like birth control pills, for example, do offer some symptomatic relief. They certainly are just putting a band-aid on the problem itself as the endometriosis and the adenomyosis will keep on growing even on birth control pills, although with a slightly slower progression. And the reality is that unfortunately to this day, the only efficacious treatment for endometriosis is surgical. And when I say surgical, I mean removing the disease. And the term for the correct term for that is excising the disease, 
cutting it out. But that involves a radical surgery. And, uh, you know, there's not as, as many doctors who are actually experienced enough to do this in a proper way. And the limitations of this ability is due to the fact that endometriosis affects not just the ovaries and not just the uterus, but also the bowel, also the ureters, the kidney, sometimes the diaphragm. And traditionally, gynecologists are ovarian surgeons. So they, they just deal with the ovaries. So many, many women, many people, they go and have these operations and uh, the doctors just deal with the ovary, which is the organ that the gynecologists operate on. And so disease gets left behind and you create this vicious cycles where people have multiple operations that end up being useless because the disease on the bowel, for example, on the underside of the chest, on the diaphragm, or on other extra pelvic areas, the bladder, do not get addressed properly. There is progress. Progress is being made, but not fast enough. And so you have these uh, terrible stories that I hear every day as a surgeon, as an endometriosis expert, where I hear of people who come to, to us who've, who've had two, three, four operations, crazy stuff. And then what happened is that these operations themselves start creating problems because, of course, there's always the surgery itself takes a toll and these people end up with these chronic ailments, some of which are you know, also iatrogenic. Iatrogenic means physician-based caused by the doctor. So it's a terrible situation. And if you think that it is estimated that one in eight to one in 10 women have endometriosis, you can understand the magnitude of the problem and how bad it is. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, what are the differences between uh, endometriosis and adenomyosis and cancer? It seems like um, very similar. You have neoplasms, they kind of spread to other areas. I mean, what do you see as the parallels? Well, you're correct. There are parallels. We think of endometriosis as something, as a cancer that doesn't kill you. But that would make you think that it's actually better. But in some ways, it's worse because it's it doesn't get the respect that cancer gets, and it doesn't get the expertise that cancer gets. Because whereas in cancer, it's not common for a, every doctor to tackle cancer because you know you don't mess around with death, potential death, right? So most doctors who deal with cancer need to have a modicum, a minimum of competence in dealing with a condition. Because endometriosis doesn't kill you, then everybody can you know, claim to be an expert and uh, give it a try, quote unquote. So in a way, th treatment for surgical treatment for endometriosis is much worse than surgical treatment for cancer, specifically for this reason, because everybody gets entitled to give it a try because it's not a life and death type of circumstance. But for some people, it is a life or death type of circumstance. Many people with this condition are literally not functional. Well, again, what is known 
about endometriosis. You know, I'm sure a lot of histology and sampling has been done on, you know, these uh, these neoplasms. What's been discovered? Yeah. What's different about them? The problem with endometriosis is that it is the tissue. The endometriosis tissue is, like I said, it looks like morphologically from some aspects, like the the, the lining of the endometrium, and uh, but behaves differently, right? And uh, but in some things, these glands behave in a similar way to the endometrium to the degree that they are extremely hormone sensitive to hormones. But contrary to, unlike the endometrial tissue itself in the uterus, they also have the ability not only to be sensitive to these hormones, but also like, and when I say hormones, I talk, I talk about progesterone and estrogen. But not only they do that, but they also have the ability to secrete progesterone, most likely estrogens commonly, secrete these hormones and therefore foster in their own internal growth. And so it is sort of a mechanism which is sort of like self-stimulation of growth, which in a way it is similar to that of cancers. But the difference with cancer is this, they don't have that level of metastasis, you know, growth in the lymph nodes to the same degree that cancer have, uh, although it does have the ability to spread in, in different areas within the peritoneum and beyond. So endometriosis remains a big enigma from this perspective. Unfortunately, like I said, from a therapeutic standpoint, there are not really any treatments that have been developed up to today to directly affect endometriosis. Most treatments are focused on hormonal suppression or inducing menopause artificially, also with certain drugs that suppress completely the hormone making ability of the woman, of the person. And by doing that, creating the state of menopause and, if you will, sort of temporarily suffocate the endometriosis because it doesn't get fed by these hormones. But because we go ahead. What, what happens to uh, an endometrial mass as a woman goes through her cycle? How does it interact with a woman's normal menstrual cycle? It does exactly what you would expect, which is it responds to the stimulation with the estrogens where they increase growth of the gland. And then also the local bleeding, which is the reason why these cysts ultimately form these chocolate cyst, which is blood, really blood filled cyst. So it goes basically through the same menstrual cycle as the endometrium does in some cases. In other cases, these uh, lesions are chronically inflamed because of the, of their ectopic location. They're constantly under attack by macrophages. And so you have this constant inflammatory reaction where you have the body attacking the lesion, then you have the reactive the body's reaction to it, which ultimately results in inflammation followed by fibrosis. And it's a cycle that repeats itself. Inflammation, bleeding, fibrosis, fibrosis, inflammation. And these lesions get bigger and bigger and bigger, more inflamed, more inflamed. This is the path that endometriosis takes in, uh, as it advances. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Is there a time that's better to do surgery at the beginning of a cycle or at the end, or does anyone even look at that? You know, when would the, the endometriosis be most quiescent and maybe well, most amenable to, to different drugs or different uh, addition of hormones? In terms of the timing of the surgery, 
you really don't want the endometriosis to be quiescent because you want to be able to see it. And uh, in fact, it's been shown that if people are taking too many hormones or they're taking those hormones that suppress and, and cause temporary menopause, you can't see this, some lesions. And so those surgeries tend to be, end up being less efficacious because lesions are missed. So you really want the lesions to be visible and alive. So, you know, technically speaking, it's kind of better immediately after a period. So there's some inflammation, but not massive inflammation. But the key is that you don't want the person to be suppressed. And that's really the key about it. But the most important part about these surgeries is that they have to be radical. The operation for endometriosis, the surgery, the surgical has to be as radical as cancer surgery, because whenever the surgery is not radical enough, the risk of recurrence becomes extremely high. And for a condition that already has a tendency to recur, if you don't, if you remove it in a not radical uh, approach, then the recurrence rate goes up to like 30, 40, 50%. And it's an unacceptable rate of recurrence. We don't have a lot of time. So I would love to talk a little bit about the fertility aspect of this, uh, if you're okay with it. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. How does it affect fertility? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, you know, I think that pain is certainly one big component of this, but fertility is also a big component of it. And I think that, you know, we need to acknowledge that the inflammatory uh, aspect of endometriosis is what affects fertility the most. And uh, it's known that women with endometriosis have a reduced fertility. And it's pretty clear that this is due to multiple factors. It's not one factor, it's multifactorial. And the factors are the level of the eggs, the egg production, which is reduced in numbers, but also in the quality of the eggs, in the sense that morphologically, these eggs display certain defects, which are quintessentially associated with endometriosis. And uh, they're due to people, some people think alterations in the hormone producing aspect of the egg, as well as a reduced number of mitochondria in uh, patients with endometriosis at the level also of the ovary and the eggs. And so it's an energetic problem. Additionally, because of the inflammatory response of the body, especially those pelvic macrophages that are attacking the endometriosis, you end up with a adversarial milieu at the level of the endometrium, which also affects implantation. And, you know, talking about implantation, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the field of reproductive immunology, which is, uh, if we have a few more minutes, is the field that's dedicated to studying, is studying the interaction between the body of the mother and the embryo, the baby. And this is an important field because... Quick question before we get into that. If someone has endometriosis, is their incidence of miscarriage likely to go way higher? Or would yes. they just not be able to get pregnant? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is that there is an entity called silent endometriosis, where people who have either reproductive failure or they have recurrent pregnancy losses, they end up having endometriosis, which has not been thought of because the person doesn't have any pain. And we call that, it's accepted to be called silent endometriosis, where the only voice that the endometriosis has is in the reproductive problem, rather this, the, the pain symptom. That's why we always advise people who are having either recurrent pregnancy losses 
uh, IVF implantation failure or even infertility to consider endometriosis as a potential additional causative factor that needs to be investigated. It was mentioned in your bio that you work with miscarriage quite a bit. I've never spoken to anyone about it. Can we go into that for maybe a few minutes? What, what happens in miscarriage? What is it, it? it? It's such a fascinating topic because miscarriage is a dramatic event in the life of people, but it's also extremely common. So it's one of those things that it's terrible if it happens to you, but when you go to a doctor's office, they see it every day. So like it's a drama that's consumed within the family, within the life of the individual. But at the level of the doctor, the people get told, oh, you know, it happens. So there's really a duality between the individual experience of the pregnancy loss, which is dramatic, and that of the society at large, which sometimes is not informed about it because some of these events are lived within the secrecy of the family. People don't commonly talk about miscarriages, but they are very common. And in fact, up to one in four women experiences a miscarriage in their life. So it's common. And But recurring miscarriages are not as common. And although the most common cause of miscarriages is a genetic problem where the embryo is genetically abnormal and thus not preventable and sort of a random event, there are a certain percentage of pregnancy losses, and that's about anywhere between 6 to 15% of them, which are uh, recurrent and are losses of normal genetic embryos and therefore not related to the normal sort of genetic problems that can happen, especially with older age. How have miscarriages been studied? I would think that, you know, they don't happen just when someone's in the hospital as much. They happen at home and, you know, without any notice, I would think most times what How has tissue gotten to study them to see what's the condition of the embryo? It's been a problem because we really didn't have a lot of knowledge about miscarriages, even like the big papers on pregnancy losses didn't really have tissue studied. And so it's a very good observation that you're making. But, you know, as IVF has gotten more sophisticated and now many, many pregnancy, many, many embryos get tested for a genetic uh, normalcy before transferring the embryos, we have learned a whole deal about the fact that even when you transfer normal embryo, there is still a baseline risk of pregnancy loss, even with normal embryos. And that number, you know, hovers anywhere between one to 6%. And these losses are most likely immunological losses, right? Because obviously we know the embryos are normal now because we have studied them. And therefore this has helped, uh, you know, has pushed for the development of the field of reproductive immunology, which is what we do at uh, Pregimmune, which is, uh, you know, the company that I founded and, and also what I've been doing clinically for a long time, which is to look at the potential immunological causes of miscarriages and implantation failure. What, what, what do I mean when I talk about immunological losses? Immunological loss is a disruption of the mechanisms of tolerance to a pregnancy. When I talk about tolerance, I talk about the fact that the embryo contains 50% of the DNA of the father, right? And therefore, these are the antigen expressed by the genetics of the father, which are on the surface of the embryonal cells, are recognized as foreign by the body of the, of the mother. And uh, therefore, the natural reaction of the body should, that be, should be one of rejection, of attack, 
right? But in reality, when those uh, antigen-presenting cells at the level of the uterus present these antigens to, uh, so the APCs presented to to those dendritic cells, and then for and then they get recognized by those uterine natural killer cells. A series of steps are in place where the process of rejection is blocked and tolerance is developed. In fact, the process of tolerance happens even earlier when people have sex and the sperm enters the body. These antigens already get presented to those APCs and then to the you know, dendritic cells. And these cells, and this is how progressively tolerance gets developed. Why do we know that this is also an important factor? Because, for example, we know that women, for example, who are using donor sperm because of personal reasons, they have and so have never been exposed to the sperm because they only do one or two inseminations and get pregnant that way. They are much more likely to develop complications of pregnancies such as, you know, which are immunological like preeclampsia, premature labor. So we know that this is the development of tolerance is important. But there are some circumstances where it's harder to develop tolerance. Some of them are related to how the couples match. So the HLA, at the level of the major histocompatibility complex, which is the group of uh, the, 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 the portion of the DNA that's responsible for developing the receptors on the surface of uh, our immune cells. Okay. So there are certain matches that are less promoting to developing tolerance. Why do we know that? And this is an interesting factoid from the study of sequestered populations. In this case, the Hittites, which is a population that's similar to the Amish. Because these populations are sequestered, they're very, they're much more genetically, you know, they're sort of much more interrelated because, you know, it's a small population. You always end up marrying somebody who's like a relative of some sort. And so there's going to be different genetic variability and people are going to be a lot more similar and therefore development of tolerance doesn't develop as well. So there are studies on that as well. And uh, therefore this process, this component of uh, the genetics of the couple is very important. And the second component that interferes with uh, developing of tolerance is the presence of autoimmunity. Because when a woman has a hyperactive immune system, then there can be a, a malfunction or a dysfunction of process of tolerance. And this is due to a, a number of factors, some of which are production of autoantibodies, antiphospholipid antibodies, and for example, as one example. And, and so like this hyperactive immune system can interfere with the implantation of a proper pregnancy. So this is sort of like what the whole field of reproductive immunology looks at when we're looking at, we try to address this problem of immunological pregnancy loss and implantation failure. It's actually a very, very interesting field. Are there any tests where they can screen a, uh, you know, a couple, potential mother, potential father, and look for compatibilities or things that would cause a problem? This is exactly what we reproductive immunology is about. It's about testing. And, you know, because this testing ability has only been developed relatively recently, we talk about the last 20, 30 years, uh, not everybody's familiar with them. But uh, one component of the test is obviously HLA testing for the couple to look at there's like too many matches and, and also other 
other components, you know, such as certain receptors on the surface of natural killer cells. And the second component of testing looks at the inflammatory testing, cytokine testing. So, or the balance, you know, the activity of, of, for example, of T helper cells. You may have heard about the TH1, TH2 ratios. You know, T helper cells are very, everybody knows about them because they're studying in HIV. So we know that aberrant production of, of certain, aberrant growth of certain T helper cells subgroups result in aberrant production of certain inflammatory cytokines. I'll just mention one, TNF, TNF alpha, or another one, interleukin 10. Uh, so these are inflammatory cytokines that when producing, overproduced, they can result in inflammatory processes and therefore more miscarriages. So all of this testing is, you know, part of an evaluation, immunological evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss. And that ultimately okay. helps guide the treatment for the problem, which usually involves some level of immune modulation. There have been many randomized prospective trials on prevention of recurrent pregnancy loss and different drugs have been employed just to name a few, prednisone, of course, which, you know, is obviously a very well-known immune suppressant, but also some blood thinners like, you know, Lovenox, which is a, a form of a heparin or like a, a variation of that, low molecular weight, and other more sophisticated medications like intravenous immunoglobulins, which are really infusions of antibodies that are help mining the antibodies that would attack the pregnancy. So there are various therapeutic interventions that can offset the risk of recurrent pregnancy loss and implantation failure. It seems like um, for a couple that have their first baby, seems to be difficult, takes a while. And miscarriages seem to come, you know, with that first one or before the first one. And then after that, it seems to go way down. And it seems to be, uh, I guess, quote unquote, too easy to make more kids. That's uh, kind of a funny piece of advice, but what, that's, what have you that's, observed? That's not, that that's not, that's not true. That may, anecdotally, okay. that may be something that you may have noticed, but it's actually, sometimes it could be the opposite. Uh, people can get sensitized after have a, a pregnancy. In fact, a lot of cases of recurrent implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss happen after the, after having had a first pregnancy. So yeah. It's not necessarily true that having had a given a live birth is the solution to the problem. That's not the fact. In fact, sometimes people get sensitized, they develop high level of uh, anti-paternal antibodies, and uh, it actually becomes even more challenging after one, one birth, believe it or not. Interesting. What have you seen happens to a woman's body if her partner causes a significant immune response? Let's say they do have a successful pregnancy, baby's born. As you said, they become sensitized. But what does that mean? Like what happens to the mother's body at well, that point? What do you notice? What happens is that, first of all, pregnancy itself is a major immune event. And one of the things that you have to be aware of is that throughout the pregnancy, there are a number of adverse interaction between the body of the mother and, and the baby, right? And some of the late pregnancy complications are specifically related to that. And one of the things that we see in women who have recurrent pregnancy losses is that many of them end up developing later pregnancy complications, such as preeclampsia, premature birth, but also, you know, pretty significant ex examples of postpartum depression, which many people think that postpartum depression is something that is related to Oh, you're tired because you can't take care of the baby, which, you know, there's truth in being tired and not being able to take care of it. But 
true psychotic postpartum depression is actually an autoimmune problem. Uh, it's immunological in nature. And in fact, the study of postpartum depression has actually prompted the attention in who actually uh, think that some depressive manifestation are actually inflammatory processes. They're you know, sort of autoimmune inflammatory. So it's a very, very interesting way of looking at the interaction between the immune system and the brain. So that's a very interesting thing that very few people are aware of. And yeah, why would, um, after a woman gives birth, why would any of this immune stoking or sensitivity survive past that? I guess the body's innate immune well, system, I guess, because, would, would keep, be, you know, keep because birth is the moment where there is the great transfer of antigens between uh, the mother and the baby. Because remember, uh, the baby and the mother with the placenta is actually, it's leaky, but it's, you know, watertight, but leaky, okay? But when birth happens, that's the, when the greatest amount of leak of uh, fetal blood goes into the mother. And this is actually even more true if the delivery is by cesarean section. That's when the maximum amount of leakage of baby blood goes into the mother. And therefore, that's when the body of the mother has the most sort of like the greatest exposure to fetal antigens. So that's one of the thinking of why this thing happens postpartum. It's yeah, fascinating. It's fascinating. And, you know, like, you know, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of hard science on this. Uh, it's not being studied, I don't think, even remotely enough. And uh, well, there's so, so many things to study. Like if you have one successful pregnancy and then you get pregnant again, what condition are you in and what, what happens with those children? You know, what happens with the second pregnancy? If the person's already sensitized, do they tend to have more problems? Do they have more? Yeah, they do. They do. They do. You know, like it's, you know, most of these immune conditions have a tendency to get worse with each pregnancy. You know, it's like, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, nausea, hyperemesis gravidarum, like the more pregnancies, the worse it gets. Right. But, you know, these are all conditions, believe it or not, that have been studied. So despite the fact that how severe, for example, premature labor or even preeclampsia, which are later complication of pregnancy, are we have very little insight on, on how these mechanisms work because, Unfortunately, from an immunological standpoint, we, we haven't really studied these mothers well enough, mostly because we know that there's a cure for these problems, which is that when the mother has this problem, the cure is to take the baby out, you know, take the baby out, problem solved. But the, but the reality is that even maternal fetal medicine doctor obstetricians don't really have a great insight. When Sometimes I'll be talking to MFM doctors and I tell them, you know, these conditions are autoimmune and they're like, well, that's not the only theory. And I'm like, wait a second, you know, the platelets go down, the blood pressure go up, the liver function goes up and you take away the baby and then the problem is solved. Sounds to me that you removed, you know, you removed an immunological challenge. And so like, it's very interesting how, unfortunately, a field that is so important hasn't been studied the way it should have been studied. It should be studied. Well, it only affects the whole future of humankind. I mean, it's not a big deal. Yeah, what's a big deal? Exactly. What's a big deal? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Are Um, are there a lot of uh, studies going on? Or is this... uh, There's some. I mean, like, you know, the the science is... You know, the great news is that immunology right now is on the forefront. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I founded this company, Pregimmune, 
And, you know, I hope uh, you don't mind like me doing a little pitch for this, you know, amazing work that we're doing at Pregimmune. And, you know, it's www.pregimmune.com. And okay. is that we are looking uh, specifically at these things. We're looking at the data. We're using artificial intelligence to actually try to identify predictive factors, try to identify risk factors that help us at least identify who is at greatest risk uh, for recurrent pregnancy loss or who, for example, will never be able to carry a pregnancy. I mean, I've seen people, I've had people come to me from all over the world, South Africa, uh, with like 13, 14, 15, 20 pregnancy losses and who have never been able to carry a pregnancy no matter what. We've done plasmapheresis in these people. And uh, so I think that there is, you know, a whole interest, scientific interest in this. But like I said, uh, like every sort of relatively new field is still feel, filled with question marks. But like my immunology right now, thanks to COVID, has really been on the forefront because people are starting to learn more. And the discoveries that are being made about immune mechanism with COVID are incredible just because of the pure you know, brute force that's being applied to studying the immune system and the causative, the causes of uh, this condition, this mysterious condition, which is still COVID and certainly long COVID as well. Not that I'm an expert in that, but certainly it's something that has helped us focus on immunology more and more and more, I think. Mm, gotcha. Why do some people have these humongous immune reactions to this virus and other people have nothing, Right. This is all genetic right. disposition, yeah. yep. right? This has nothing to. I mean, it's, it has something to do with the virus, but it has. Well, to I know. Be, I, uh, you know, I don't want to really wander into that because you know. Oh, no, no, definitely, no, 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 no. Of course, but I'm saying this is why I'm talking about immune genetic predisposition is very important. That's all there is. Yeah, of course. Right. Have you or anyone you know looked into the microbiome and how that changes with a woman's cycle? How it changes with endometriosis? How it changes before and after miscarriage, etc. I personally haven't, but as we know, the microbiome is, you know, important at every level. And what we need to remember is that our intestine is an immune organ, right? Because that's the, where the exchange happens between the outside world and the, in, and the inside of our bodies, right? And also in, the same thing applies to the vagina, right? So ultimately the imbalances in the microbiome are going to affect our immune system and ultimately are going to affect inflammation. So there are tests, there are some tests that have been developed looking at that. But the problem with microbiome testing still to this day is that nobody really knows what a normal microbiome profile is, right? Because there may not be such thing as a normal because it's possible that there are many normals and so that there's, in, depending on where people live, parts of the world where they live, the, their diet. So it's a very fascinating problem, but it's been, I think it's so far has been kind of a problem determining what's normal and what's an actual deviation from the standard, with the exception of the obvious cases where you have evident bacterial overgrowth, right? You know, when we're looking at patients with endometriosis, we see a frequent association with this condition called SIBO, uh, small intestinal bacterial over overgrowth, where you do see, you know, great overgrowth of uh, methane-producing bacteria in the small bowel, 
And, you know, that we know that it's grossly abnormal, but when it comes to the normal microbiome at the level of the uterus or the level of the vagina, like really, we don't really know yet what normal is and how to actually correct it. You know, that's why when you see any sort of like probiotic product, you know, like your answer is as good as mine of what a good probiotic should be. Right. You know, we just give stuff in certain, you know, amounts, you know, we give lactobacillus because we know it belongs there, hoping that, you know, we're correcting something, but we don't really know that what we're doing really. And well, a lot more to explore. Um, very good. Uh, Andrea, we're out of the, we're out of time. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work, which is very interesting. Where can they go? Well, thank you so much. First of all, great questions. The best way to get in touch with us is www.pregimmune.com, P-R-E-G, mune.com and that's on the immunology reproductive side and uh, if people uh, please follow me either on instagram or facebook look up my name andrea vidali md endometriosis surgeon i'm very easy to find and again thank you so much for having me today and thank you for this very interesting chat and sorry if i just went all over the place but you know i think that uh, i'm so I'm so, I, I'm so interested about this field that sometimes I get overly enthusiastic. No, it's okay. Enthusiasm is good. It's better than just boring and, you know, reading, yeah. I don't know, prepared <laughs> statements. So, you know, no, thanks, Andrea. It was a very good call. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.